the topic that I wanted to address today is not something that is above anyone, um, or we're not above it, because it's something that I think all of us have seen in our years of um, yeah, being a Christian or being students at the Bible college. You even see this at seminary level. And that is the issue of apathy, where we grow cold in our love for Christ. Um, and that's especially dangerous in Bible college settings and seminaries because um, we're just filled with good, rich education and theological training. Um, but, but we see this um, in graduates of Bible colleges and seminaries where people walk away from four years of, or six years or five years of education and they grow cold in their love for Christ. Uh, you know, I know some of you are taking Christology class with Dr. Ghazal. Um, you could ace a Christology exam, but you could walk away and have no love for Christ. Isn't that ironic? I mean, that is possible. And we see the danger of that in all of our lives, right? Where we are cranking out homework assignments, papers, and, and studying for exams, but we really have lost kind of this pulse, spiritual pulse and love for Christ. And so, um, like I said, none of us are above this. Um, I think I recently heard a story of even our college, our graduate, right, running into one of our faculty members and saying she doesn't really go to church. She doesn't really want to be looking for a church. She doesn't really have this ongoing relationship with Christ because um, she has faced some hardship from churches in the past. And it seems like that hardship was greater than her remembrance of what Christ has done for her. And so all that to say, I think it's very pertinent for us to remember that as we have been richly given much, um, especially through the discipleship that goes on, the education and the teaching and the mentorship and the fellowship that happens in our college, that we are mindful of remembering um, that Christ first loved us. And that's really the only reason why we're able to do the things that we're able to do. We're able to sit under the teaching that we're able to sit under. And so um, with that kind of as the problem that we all understand, right? Um, none of us um, are above this. Um, well, I want to I wanna answer the question, well, what's going on at the heart, right? What's going on at the heart level? What needs to change for us to not have to find ourselves in a position where we know a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, and we can defend the truth, but we don't really know why we do what we do because we have forgotten God's love. And so with that in, as the introduction, let's open to Revelation chapter 2. You've got your Bible, Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book in the New Testament, as you know. And um, if you know Revelation... Um, Chapter 2, it's, it's the opening of the seven letters to the churches um, in Asia Minor. Um, and this is Jesus talking to the Apostle John and commanding him to write certain things to these seven churches. And the church that we come across is the church in Ephesus. And so I'll read from verse 1 through 7. So follow along in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, 
and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to test to you put to test you put to, to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, to set the context a little bit of this letter, um, we know that it's written to the church in Ephesus. And if you know Ephesus, it's in the western coast of our modern-day Turkey. Um, and this uh, was a city during the first century, a very popular city, because it was a trading post. There were ships coming in and out of this harbor. Um, and so it wasn't just the goods, like material goods that were coming in. There were also pagan religions that were coming in. Um, if you know a little bit of church history or just history in general, you know that Ephesus had um, this temple that worshipped Diana, who is the goddess of the, of the hunt, the Greek goddess of hunt, hunting. Um, and so you can imagine this was a culture that had just a, a pot of mixed religions, uh, mixed beliefs and philosophies, uh, a pretty hard place for the ministry of the apostles to endure. However, um, if you also know, in um, Acts 19, when Paul arrived there, um, he found some disciples. He, he found disciples in Ephesus, and he stayed and ministered there for three years. I mean, I, I just think about that, and I, I wonder what kind of um, ministry every week or every day that was happening under Paul's leadership and Paul's teaching. I mean, you, you have a guy who's got, you know, uh, what you would call PhD in church planning in your city, teaching and discipling and evangelizing and preaching. Um, and I just think about, you know, all of you looking at all of you and thinking, man, if, if Apostle Paul came to NBC for three years and taught, you know, um, church planning, taught Christology, taught Greek, we, we would just lose our minds, right? And so, as you can imagine, this church was richly, richly blessed. And so, um, to kind of get a glimpse of it, turn your, um, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Um, this is profound because we kind of get a glimpse of Paul's heart for the church here and the leaders, here, the elders. This is kind of his farewell. Um, looking at verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. This is Paul. And they had come to him, and he said to them, Paul saying to the elders, he says, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, Paul, right? He, he just said, I poured my heart out. I gave everything that I got. This was church planning done right. This was elders training done right. I mean, he just gave himself sacrificially. Um, and it wasn't just Paul, right? You guys know this. Um, it wasn't just Paul who ministered at the church in Ephesus. Um, Priscilla and Aquila most likely ministered there. Um, as you know, Timothy, right? The young Timothy uh, was also ministering in Ephesus um, as, the ch- uh, as, as the church's pastor. We also know um, that Ephesus rarely is um, of the seven churches is the only church, is the only city with a, an inspired letter written to the church. Right? Profound, right? So they have been just given abundantly. Um, for those of you who, who watch basketball, who, fo- who follow sports, and even if you don't, you, you, you probably recognize these names. like Kobe Bryant, right? Uh, LeBron James, Stephen Curry, uh, Michael Jordan. Imagine like you, you get all of them and, 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 and they form a, a team of coaches and they coached um, your high school's basketball team. I don't know if that translates at all, but, but it, you just basically have a, a I mean, golden lineup of teachers and leaders for this church, right? So they had, they had incredible potential. There was probably no other church like this in history, the church in Ephesus. Um, and the reason I'm saying all of this um, is because this church, even though it was given a lot of spiritual um, blessing, a lot of blessings were given to this church, it, it, it failed to live up to that potential, right? You could be given all this, you know, spiritual steak and potato and all, all the five-course meals uh, when it comes to your, your, your spirituality and yet fail to live up to what's being, what's being given to you. And so that's what happened to this church. And it's, it's a sad example, but there's, I think, a lot for us to learn from. As Bible college students, um, we, we, we are often reminded how much we're given, right? Um, and yet we can take that and completely trash it. And so I think this comes at a pretty timely fashion for us as we close out this semester and as we head into the summer to remember what we've been given. And so let's turn back to Revelation chapter 2 and study this passage, this, this letter that Christ gives to this church um, almost after 40 years um, after the church has been planted. So at the time of this letter being written, um, Revelation, um, it had been about 40 years since the birth of this church. And look at how we find this church. But before we even get there, uh, let's look at who is writing and who is or who is speaking and who it's written to. Look at verse one. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. The recipient in your translations probably say either the angel of the church or the messenger of the church. That's because the Greek word angelos uh, can be translated as messenger. And we probably believe that this was a human messenger because we don't really find anywhere else that a a holy angel is given to a specific church. And so this is probably a human messenger that delivered this letter to the church in Ephesus. And the speaker is none other than our glorious Christ, um, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
and the one who walks in the middle or among the seven golden lampstands. And look at verse, um, verse 20 of chapter 1 to see what, what the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands are. Um, verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, or the, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So basically what Jesus is saying here is that I am the one who holds the messengers, and I'm the one who walks in the middle, in the midst of these churches. He is sovereign over the messengers, and he is sovereign over the church. Um, and so now, with that kind of as the context, what does Jesus want to say as the Lord of these churches, as the Lord of the church in Ephesus? What does he want to say and communicate to them? Look at verse 2. Um, he says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Um, if you know, if you, um, F, um, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, um, you know that every letter begins with these two words, I know. Christ knows what's going on in the church. I mean, we can't hide from him. He is omniscient because he is God himself. Um, and he knows what's going on in his churches. Um, he is the one who said, I will build my church. It's his church. And so he is intimately familiar with what's going on in churches. And what is it that he knows about this church? Well, number one, this church did not tolerate evil. And they did not tolerate evil people. Um, they had, I mean, what you would call theological fortitude, right? They had some thick skin. Um, they knew how to defend systematic theology. They, they knew how to defend the Bible. Um, and you can see that uh, when, when Paul or when John or when Jesus says, you put to test those who call themselves apostles. They knew the qualifications of apostles. They loved truth. And another thing that they loved is they loved holiness. Um, jump back earlier in the verse. It says, you cannot tolerate evil men. That, that, that's, that's a convictional language, right? I mean, you guys know this. When, whenever you come across language like that, that, that's talking about conviction. These people in this church had conviction for holiness. <laughs> they, they didn't want to tolerate evil deeds, evil speech, evil thoughts, evil men. They, they, they had no room uh, for tolerance when it came um, to unholiness and ungodliness. And so people in this church had um, truth. They had holiness. And lastly, they had perseverance. Look at verse 3. It says, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Um, this was church, like I said earlier, um, planted in the middle of a very pagan society. They worshipped Greek goddess uh, Diana, and they had pagan philosophies coming in and out because of how popular the city was. And yet under that kind of pressure from outside and persecution that was going around during this time, um, they endured, they persevered, they didn't grow weary. Um, and so three, three really um, refreshing characteristics that you see from a church, right? They, they had truth, 
they had holiness and they had perseverance. They were thick skinned. Um, and that's not all. Look at verse six. It says this, yet this you also have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were really immoral, idolatrous people. Um, they were your modern heretics, you could even say. Um, and they were false teachers encouraging evil deeds. Um, and the bottom line is this. These people in this church hated what Jesus hated. And I just look at a lot of your faces and I have you know, talked with many of you who, who've, who've stood strong in all of these things. You, you've hated evil deeds of, uh, of evil men. You've hated um, false doctrine and have pushed against that, and, and you've stood firm in the midst of trials, right? Um, you, you hated what Jesus hated, and you, you still hate what Jesus hated, and that would be sin and falsehood. Um, and so th that, that's encouraging for us to hear, right, of, of a church in the first century who, who endured through trials, who stood for the truth, who loved holiness, now, all of this commendations is, is really encouraging for us, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of what you would want to see on a resume, right? I mean, imagine after you graduate from the Bible college and you, you write on the top of your resume, I hate what Jesus hates. Or, or, or you write, um, I, I hated the deeds of evil men. Or I, I, I know the qualifications of a real apostle and I'm able to identify who are the false apostles. Or I'm able to not grow weary in the midst of uh, persecution and pressure from our culture. I mean, that would be a quite impressive resume, right? You did this, you did that, you defended the truth, you, you lived a holy life. Um, and so all these, this church had, the church in Ephesus, and, and we would... We were not surprised that they had all these things because they had the Apostle Paul ministering there. But get this, after these commendations, uh, we find this uh, rather shocking verse. It's the conflict. It's the conflict that Christ has with this church. Look at verse 4. It says this, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Shocking, right? What a jolting comment from our Lord to this church. Um, this, this love um, that ignited our soul to be born again, somehow the people in this church had forgotten it, right? Um, I'm not sure that you guys are going to laugh at this, but um, it's, there's also a sobering part of it because I'm sure you've, you've seen this personally um, in your uh, close relationships, but a husband who comes home, right, to his wife and says that, yeah, honey, uh, I'll walk around um, the neighbor with you. I'll, I'll eat meals with you. I'll, I'll go on dates with you. Um, I'll, I'll raise a family with you, but I don't love you. I mean, that would be a surprise, a shocking thing for a husband to say to his wife, right? And yet here we find a church who's forgotten their, their marital vow to Christ, in a sense, their first love. Um, and you might be sitting there wondering, like, how does this happen? Like, how does a church who's been given so much, 
who, who initially had this zeal for Christ and devotion to Christ, how did they lose or leave their first love? And I, and I thought of two things that really, I think, and when you boil it down, these two things um, answer it pretty well. And they're forgetfulness and complacency. Forgetfulness and complacency. Um, for those of you who own plants and who have owned plants, um, you know that one of the most agonizing ways to kill a plant is what? You just forget about it. Right? And, and that's the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing some of you guys smile because you're probably like, I've done that. Um, one of the most agonizing ways to kill a plant is just you just forget about it. And that's what happens with our love too. Our love for God and God's love for us, our love for the lost, our love for fellow brothers and sisters, we forget, it, we lose it when we forget about it. And so I think that's what happened this church. They just simply neglected to think about it. And I think a practical implication is for us, where's our love? You know, if, if Christ came to your, um, your church, came to your dorm, came to your room, and, and stuck a thermometer in your love for him, in your love for his word, what, what would it read? Right? Uh, that's a challenging thing to think about. Um, especially as Bible college students, you guys are just cranking out papers after papers. I know that, um, yeah, that's, you, you can just be preoccupied by assignments and exams and, and um, yeah, just things that are good but you can forget the love of God that is given to us through Christ. And so forgetfulness is probably one of the reasons why this church left their first love. And the second reason I said is complacency. They got comfortable in their sanctification. Um, you know, they were diligent in sound teaching, but indifferent and slothful in fueling love. Right. Um, I just think about some of you guys and I, and, and, and this is not, I'm not picking on anyone. Uh, this is not meant to just pick on you, but uh, being able to sit at the front desk and talk to you guys after your classes or after uh, a five hour homework session, you come out of it to take a breather in the office. And, and here I am, I'm, I'm grilling you with questions about how you're doing and how's your heart been. And, and then there have been moments, right? that all of you can probably remember where you were just doing things to crank out assignments and there was really no love for Christ, no remembrance of this first love. And so being complacent, being comfortable with the way things are with routine, that can really hinder us from remembering the first love. And so um, my encouragement to you guys as you uh, continuing your education is that you continue to remember this love um, that you can be the most theologically advanced student in the classroom, but you could be apathetic to love. And so remember this love, don't grow cold in it. Um, and really at the end of the day, we must call what we must call this for what it is, right? It, it's a sin to have loveless pursuit of knowledge. Does that make sense? To, it's, it's a sin to have a loveless pursuit of knowledge. And that's, that's why the correction comes um, in the next verse. Look at verse 5. This is the correction. The conflict 
And now the correction. It says this, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is, you could call it our Lord doing biblical counseling with this church, right? There's a problem, there's sin, and he is here to correct them. And really, he gives three points of correction, and, and they're quite easy to remember. Over the years, this has, have, has helped me um, just check my heart and my devotion to Christ, and that's remember, repent, and repeat. Look at the first imperative. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Um, and I think this is referring to our memory of salvation. I'm not talking about a date or a place um, of conversion, but I think he, he's just talking about remember how, how you were once dead in sin and now you are alive in Christ. You love because um, he, he first loved you, right? First John 4 talks about that, that, that idea of how we have been first loved by God. And so we, we ought to remember these things when we recognize our love growing cold. Um, I just think about how all of us, right, as um, Christians, we love baptisms and testimonies, right? Well, why is that? That's because we, we are reminding ourselves, we're reminding one another of the sweetness of the work that Christ does in the lives of sinners. And so we, we, we ought to remember these things. Um, and what's shocking is, unbelievers right unbelievers have nothing to remember right if you if you're not a christian there is no first love for you to remember and i just think about how 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 piercing this imperative would have been to the unbelievers that may have attended this church right jesus is saying remember and, and i'm going if you're an unbeliever i've got nothing to remember and so just again, a challenging exhortation to both believers and unbelievers to remember because believers ought to remember the sweetness of salvation and then unbelievers have nothing to remember. Second command, as you see um, in verse five is repent. It's repent. Um, and as I thought about this, repentance may be one of the weakest areas of modern evangelicals. And I think that boils it down to because of the confusion right now that there is between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, as you know, produces death and godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. Um, and, and while we might know that verse, we might not really see the implications of that. And so as I was thinking about it, um, this, is, this is, I guess, kind of the negative example. This is how you would... Um, if you if you want to live an unrepentant life, this is what you got to do, right? You got to never be honest about your sins, right? You always find ways to coddle and feed the idolatries of your heart, right? If you want to live an unrepentant life, you, you continue to feed that idol. That's how you live an unrepentant life, and you never tell anyone about it. You you also neglect to equip your heart and soul and your will with the truth of Scripture. And, and, and battle your sin, right? There's no equipping of your will with the word of, word of God. And then if you also want to continue to live an unrepentant life, you, 
you don't really make any plans for change, right? You don't really make any radical steps um, to crucify this ongoing pattern of shallow repentance. And now, obviously, the flip side of all of that is that you, you be honest with your sins. You know, you, you continue to starve the idols of your heart. You equip yourself with the word of truth. And you get after, you come up with a plan of change, plan of action, and do it in humble dependence on the Lord. And so, as you know, repentance is key in the life of a Christian. And sadly, this church in, uh, that, that was given this letter, uh, by AD 200, was no longer found um, anywhere. Um, this church had disappeared, and this is really what happened um, um, according to God's word. Because if you look at verse 5, it says, um, Or else, unless you repent, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. The lampstand was referring to what? The church, right? So God had removed this church because of their unrepentance. Um, and that is a sobering reminder um, to all of us that God does not tolerate unrepentant life. And really, an unrepentant life is a prideful life, isn't it? And really, there's no such a thing, no, no, no such a thing as, a, as an unrepentant Christian. I mean, I mean those don't exist, right? Um, it's like saying a believing unbeliever. <laughs> there's, there's not, that's not, it's an oxymoron. And so as, as believers, we want to be repentant. Uh, we want to be cultivating godly sorrow. And last counsel that Christ gives to this church is repeat. It was remember, repent, and look at what he says. Do the deeds you did at first. He says, go back to what you were doing. You were doing well, so go back to it. You know, this is this kind of uh, blows a big hole on the on the theology of sanctification that just says you just got to meditate on the indicatives, and that's how you're sanctified. Um, Christ doesn't say that. He doesn't just say merely meditate on these things. While he does say remember these things, what is he also saying? He, he gives an imperative to do, right? To do the things that you did before. Go back to fervent prayer. Go back to this delightful reading of scripture and, and rich fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Go back to it. Um, I'm sure all of us can attest to this. We love new believers, right? New Christians who just came to know the Lord. Well, why is that? Because they've got this zeal to just want to continue to learn, continue to soak up these things. And Christ is saying, do that, right? Um, I'm sure some of you are doing well right now, running hard after the Lord, but some of you might be in a season where, man, you just are not the zealous Christian that you once were. Christ is telling you, remember, repent, and redo. Go back to those days when you were just enthralled by Christ. And so those are the ways that um, Christ uh, those are the commands that Christ gave to this church um, who left their first love. Remember, repent, and redo. And now he offers a promise to those who obey, who obey the joy of an obedient life, right? Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat 
the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The overcomers are Christians. Um, if you turn to First John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, um, it says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Listen, it says this, But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomers are Christians, and Christians will endure till the end. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are, are, are we overcomers? Uh, do we prevail in the midst of persecutions and pressures and trials? Um, do we pers- persevere until the end? And, and really, guys, that's, that, that is the litmus test, isn't it? When, when we look at our lives and people ask, how, how do I know if I'm a Christian or not? Um, and, and I'm sure there's other measures of it, but the ultimate and the final and, and the definitive test is, do you persevere until the end, right? Are, are, are you holding fast to the faith that has been given to you until the end and, and can say with the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith, I've fought the good fight, I, I've run the race with endurance. Um, and, I, and obviously there's a balance to that, right? We, we don't just stubbornly say, I'm going to persevere. We, we are preserved by God's grace, but there's, there's, it's, both an, it's, it's both and. We are preserved by God, and we persevere. Um, there's God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And so that's the text before us. And the question that hopefully is ringing in all of our minds is, where is my love? Where's my love at today? Um, I know quarantine has been hectic. It's put a different pace in life. Uh, but the question we ought to be asking is, where is my love? I mean, I'm just looking at, I'm the only, I can only do four screens at a time, as you know. But if I were to just take screenshot of every one of these um, pairs of four, um, how many of us are going to be still walking with the Lord 10 years from now? How many of us are going to be walking with the Lord 20 years from now and 60 years from now? Right? Or, or um, could we be different from this church and not be told by the Lord, you have left your first love, but that he can say you have grown in your love? Right? I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing for us to hear from the Lord because we recognize that this walk, this life, this love is not a momentary acknowledgement, right? It's not a loveless knowledge, but it is a, it's a, it's a lovely confession that we belong to him and him alone. And all that we are comes from all that he is. Amen. And so reflect on this as you head into your summer. Um, yeah. Check your heart, go before the Lord and ask that he would preserve you and persevere till the end. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father God, just thank you for this text. What a sobering reminder that none of us are above this sin of growing loveless, uh, forgetting your, your love, forgetting our first love. And so, Lord, we do come before you and acknowledge and confess that this is our tendency. Our tendency is to forget. Our tendency is to grow complacent especially in the, in the circle of Bible colleges and, 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 and seminaries where we're just fed rich truths and we're given 
spiritual nourishment that we grow uh, complacent, we grow forgetful of the first love. And may not be, may, may that be not true of our students, um, but at the same time, if that becomes um, reality, we also know that you have given us your counsel for us to remember, for us to repent, and for us to repeat the deeds that we first did. And so thank you for your grace and your kindness to give us these instructions, these reminders, these sweet truths that keep us in the faith. Um, Lord, we, we love you. We want to do everything that we do, remembering that you first loved us, and that's why we can do what we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.